And that's nature for you guys. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a symbiotic relationship is literally just having a creature shit in your mouth for you so that you may survive. It's like crawling into the tubes at a McDonald's play place and you can only go one way and that just leads straight to the griddle. <laughs> I give myself to this plan, f*** the corporations. Anyway. Probably brambles were planted from the gray aliens right. 10 years ago. Yeah. Did you say 10 years ago? <laughs> Okay. Have you ever been gardening and are tired of your neighbors coming up to you to ask you what you're planting? Wear a tinfoil hat. Tin, tin hat. Do you want to start or do you want me to start? Um, Every episode starts of, like this. <laughs> one of us should start. One of us should start. Okay. One of us should start. So hello, take it or leave it listeners. Oh, I wanted to start. Oh, you wanted to start. I okay. wanted to start. Okay. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Hey, take it at leave. Take, hey, you should, you should start. I should, is that why I should start? Okay. Yeah, should start. <laughs> hey there, take it or leave it. Listen, take it. Oh, see now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you guys can't tell before we get started, Ethan and I are recording remotely. I am in the Illinois studio and Ethan is coming in remotely from St. Louis. We are wrapping up some landscape projects, so couldn't be in person for this one. But this week we are going to be talking about carnivorous plants. Yeah, this is a, a fun episode that we had attempted to record earlier, but the audio wasn't quite up to par. So we decided we should do this not in person through <laughs> Discord so that the audio was better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so everything's going great. <laughs> you did find this really cool article, too, which we'll reference a little bit later when we get into it. But it was right. really helpful to and that was from... The Natural History Museum in in, um, London. In, in England. Yes, yes. But anyway, we'll get into that a little bit more. Before we get into the topic, I did want to give a quick shout out to our international listeners. We've been getting quite a few. I mean, we just launched this podcast in middle end of March. May. Or May. May, right? May, May. May, yeah. Middle end of May. May. Thank you. And already we have listeners in Belgium, the UK, France, India, Canada, Ghana, and the Philippines. So thank you all for listening internationally. Or thank you for purchasing a VPN. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm very excited to know that we have international listeners. Yeah, me too. And our spread across the U.S. has really surprised me too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, shout out to you guys. Thanks for listening. And then also, I did want to ask of all of you guys just to, if you have a second, go on whatever podcast player you're using or Spotify and iTunes are definitely very helpful just to give us a rating and review on there. Even if you wouldn't give us five stars, give us five stars anyway, but then write your critiques <laughs> give, under the Give five us stars. four stars with some constructive criticism. Or, or five stars with constructive <laughs> criticism. And also, just to help us continue to build that following on Facebook and Instagram, please do share our, our profile page with your friends. It is super quick and easy. It takes like 10 seconds to tell all your friends about the page and get that information about us out there to them on Facebook. All you have to do is go to our page at the top right or top middle-ish under the company name. There's that little three dots as a button and you can click that, click invite friends, select all and click send invites. Super quick, super easy. Instagram is similar. If you go to our profile page again, that button with the three dots on it on the top right, at least on mobile, click share this profile, select your friends, send. I mean, it is so quick and easy and it really, really helps out us and helps out the show so please do give us some invites to your friends we have a lot of things to talk about plant wise and we need more people to listen to us right yeah 
We we need it inherently. <laughs> our, our horticulture, our opinions are important, people. <laughs> They're important to us, and they should be important to your friends. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we really enjoy doing this. And in order for us to do it, you know, not only is it, I think, beneficial for us to down the road get any sort of endorsements or sponsorships to continue to do this, but also good for our morale. That people like <laughs> what we have to say. And we're still learning. I mean, gosh, we've only been doing this for a very short period of time, three months. Right. So we're still very much infants in this world and and learning what it is that our audience wants and what it is that we really like to do with this podcast. And we still have plenty of time to figure that out. But the more interactions we get from social media, yeah, the more whether it's we have, the more we can get a better picture of right. exactly what all this community is looking for of us because obviously we have a lot of horticultural knowledge some of which is absolutely useless to most people so um, having more feedback from you guys helps us to uh, come up with a good a good plan moving forward right we grasp that going into the cation exchange capacity of the soil and how magnesium binds uh, (laughs) to the hydrogen molecules in your soil we could talk about that just like we could talk about the tissue culture of moth orchids but we would probably be talking to a lot less of if anyone anybody. is interested in tissue culture let us know because we did record an episode about it <laughs> and then ethan was like you got to head this up cuz i don't know that much about it and then i was like oh damn if now i'm feeling real self conscious about talking about this as a whole topic it is a shorter episode but very fun topic either way or if people just want me to read more books and talk about what i read i'm good at that right <laughs> Yeah, if you feel like episode one was our best episode, let us know. Let us know. Because I have lots more books. I just need motivation to read them. I don't want to read books for nobody. Right. I'm not going to just read a book for myself. Ethan only reads a book for an audience. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so getting into our main topic. And again, Ethan found this article on the website for the Natural History Museum in London in the UK, and it is titled Carnivorous Plants, the Meat Eaters of the Plant World by Carrie Lotsoff. Carrie Lotsoff. Hats off to Carrie Lotsoff. And hopefully we're pronouncing that right. So I will post the link to this article in the episode description as per the usual. But when Ethan found this, uh, like we said, we had already kind of recorded an episode on this, but this article really had a lot of great information. We learned a few new things as well, so wanted to share that with you all, and let's get into it. So Ethan, how would you, I guess we should go through and just kind of give a general description of what carnivorous plants are. I feel like I... It's just, it's inside of me and I have to get it out. I have to rattle off plant names for our listeners. Okay. Will you allow me to do that? Oh, names for the listeners. Names for the listeners based and on it's the topic fine, this it's week. Fine, it's fine-tuned for this episode. Okay. I'm very proud of it. You're prepared. Okay. So, so these so have- are more, more possible names for our listeners. And by possible, I mean almost impossible that we'll use these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got our... <laughs> Our pitcher plant Patricia's mm-hmm. shout out to all of our pitcher plant Patricia's listening yep. and our, our fly trap Freddy's mm-hmm. or Venus fly trap Victoria's. Yep. Am I doing good? Uh, uh, no, but go ooh, on. Wait, <laughs> our, our, our sundew Sally's. Yep. And if you don't like any of those names, don't be a carnivorous plant Karen. And if you feel like being a carnivorous Karen, Go ahead and message us where we can ignore it like adults. <laughs> okay. Are right. you, uh, you got it I out just of your system? I of my pedestal. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So getting into how we would describe carnivorous plants. Well, there's several different types of them. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, we'll go into, you know, our basics of of what most people I think associate to carnivorous plants and probably the ones that you and I are most familiar with as well. And that's your Venus flytrap, your pitcher plants and probably sundews would right. probably, I would say would be Those are the main the number three that you can even get. If you went out to your local garden center and they had carnivorous plants, those would be the main three you could buy. Now, right. going and online or something like that, there's lots of different options and hybrids and all, all sorts of crazy stuff. But as far as what's most readily available, those tend to be the ones. And we'll get into in-depth more description of those. Yeah. And as far as like what categories these carnivorous plants would be in, I'd say the main thing about a carnivorous plant is that it, and maybe insectivorous is also more associated to a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So I would say most carnivorous plants would be insectivorous. So yep. they eat insects or other creepy crawlies, you know, arachnids or whatever else. Yep. But some of them can get large enough to eat smaller critters like uh, small rodents and or reptiles or amphibians. Mm-hmm. But they're eating something else, hence why they are carnivorous, because yep of how they have evolved to live in areas where soil structure is poor or lack of nutrients in the soil. Like bogs uh, and swamps and... Exactly. Rocky, sandy. Right. So they've evolved to essentially their roots are more or less just an anchor, some of these plants. But they're not necessarily getting nutrients from the soil where their roots are like a traditional plant Or not everything they need. Right. The leaves will still photosynthesize. Some of them have a photosynthetic leaf, so they're still getting nutrients and able to produce carbohydrates through the photosynthesis process. But in order to get extra nutrients, they have to eat some sort of creature in order to sustain themselves. It's very interesting how many of these plants have evolved to do this. And we're going to talk about some of those. So yeah, like Ethan had mentioned with kind of the location and habitat, as well as some of their diet, how they lure those insects in is very specialized too. So they typically will have some sort of specialized leaf structure. Like obviously a lot of people are familiar with Venus flytraps where you have that leaf that opens and closes to capture insects. Essentially the mouth, but it's, right. it's it's not. It is a leaf and not a flower or it is, yeah, specialized leaf. But so the different modes that they have of attracting this prey, like you just mentioned, sometimes the leaves can mimic the colors of flowers. I know we'll often see like a lot of reds and burgundies and very like deep, rich colors that kind of give off that flower-like look. And then usually there's some kind of combination of things happening, whether that's that coloration along with a really strong smelling nectar that acts as an attractant for these insects could just be the camouflaging of the plant itself. And so they're kind of getting some insects based on happenstance of those insects falling into the trap. And then of course, hybrids of combinations of those. And then as far as how they're doing this, and we'll get into more specifics based on some of the varieties that we mentioned, but that could be like a pitfall type where the insect is falling into something that it can't get out of with those leaf structures. It could be adhesive where they're getting caught in a sticky substance and being trapped and digested, a snap trap like a Venus fly trap, a snare where they're getting into an area that they can't get out of. Or if we get into some of the aquatic versions, there's also suction, which is kind of interesting. Um, Yeah. But then because these plants are capturing insects for food, they also have the problem of they still need to be pollinated so that they can reproduce. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about being pollinated by pollinator insects when a good chunk of your diet is insects? Yeah. And so what they'll do is they will produce a flower. And I've had Venus flytraps that produced a flower. And when my first Venus flytrap years ago, I don't currently have any, but when one of mine produced a flower years ago, it towered above the uh, the foliage of that flytrap by like eight plus inches. And it was just cute little spike with these little white flowers at the top of it. And I remember thinking, that's kind of cool that the flower is so far away from these traps that are trying to eat insects. So that way, whatever's trying to pollinate it, whether it's another gnat or a fly or a bee or a butterfly that goes to that flower, isn't drawn to 
the carnivorous leaves down below that spike. And sure enough, that is what a lot of horticulturists or botanists, biologists believe is happening with a lot of these carnivorous plants that produce these tall flowers, whether it's the butterwort or it is a Venus flytrap or the, the sundew. They all have these flowers that tower above when they do produce them, the trap of the foliage. And I just think that's in addition to the fact that the plant has evolved to digest a living creature for sustenance, for it to also recognize that in order for it to survive, it has to have a flower that can be pollinated away from the foliage that is trying to eat these insects. That is a fascinating level of evolution that really I don't is. think, if anything, it should open your eyes to the level of evolution that a plant has to adapt to its environment. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I think often we really don't give plants credit for what they are capable of and how they interact with their environment. But there is a level of intelligence there and not in the same way that we would, you know, as far as my knowledge goes, not in the same way that we kind of define our own intelligence with IQ or anything like that, but intelligence over many, many, many thousands, if not millions of years of cellular mutation to create these very cool adaptations for their environment and all of that. I mean, if you're not fascinated enough by the fact that plant is eating another creature for sustenance to at least have a level of fascination for the fact that it can produce a flower far away from its mouths, so to speak, mm -hmm. so that it can stay alive. That's fascinating. That is oh, just yeah. absolutely fascinating to me at least. Oh yeah, definitely. So we mentioned kind of the three main varieties or groups of varieties that tend to be readily available for purchase. Do you want to go with Venus flytrap first, since that's the one people are most familiar with? That's probably the one that most people are familiar with. That's the plant that inspired the Audrey II in Little Shop of Horrors. It's the plant that inspired the little carnivorous guys from Super Mario it is, I think, probably the poster child of the carnivorous plant world. And what's so cool is how it has become this poster child for the carnivorous plant world. It's recognized all over the world, but it's native to North and South Carolina here in the United States. Ooh, and I, I just know find that, that. that, yeah, it, that to me, that's just so cool that this plant from North and South Carolina in the boggy swamp areas of that area is now recognized around the world as being this vicious plant. And it's fascinating. It's so cool. There's all kinds of different cultivars of it now, different colorations, varying sizes. There's some of them that have been bred now to have a, a closed mouth that is like the size of a nickel to a quarter, which is huge. Mm -hmm. So when it's open, it's even larger than that. But I think your standard one is probably going to have, you know, a dime size specialized leaf or smaller. And they have these little itty bitty hairs. And so this Usually, is a snap type trapping yes, mechanism that, for the for the insects. Yeah. Yes. And so it opens up entirely, tries to be flat or at least as open as the appendages will allow it to get. And inside of the mouth, quote unquote, is usually a red coloration like you were saying earlier. And that's to trick an insect that might see in a different way that we do, they might be triggered by that red and they go to land on it. They think it's a flower. There's the nectar yes. attractant. Everything seems fine. So what's really cool about how the Venus flytrap has evolved because it doesn't just want to snap close at anything, you know, a tiny leaf or something falls in the leaf. It doesn't want it to snap close on that because once it snaps close, it starts to generate and it creates a seal then the digestive fluids start to be released in there. And if there's nothing in there for it to digest, then it digests itself and it dies. So anyone who has grown a Venus flytrap at their house, they might have experienced that where if it closes by itself with nothing in there, more often than not, shortly after that leaf starts to rot and die off. And that's because it literally digested itself. So, what it has evolved to do so it doesn't just close haphazardly on anything that happens to land in its mouth is it's developed these little 
hairs or spikes on the inside of its mouth, usually about three on each side. And as long as and it takes two of them to be triggered in a very short period of time, less than a second, I think. So what happens is the idea behind it is a bug crawls through, triggers one, the snap won't close. But within a very short period of time, if a second filament hair, whatever you want to call them, I'm sure there's an actual scientific name for them. Once a second one is triggered, then that triggers this rapid closure of that trap. And then from there, lights out, lights out. But yeah, so that's the Venus flytrap. So super cool plant, probably the one that most people are familiar with. But I would say the next runner up is the pitcher plant. Yeah. And there's kind of two main categories, but both of them essentially have, again, a specialized leaf structure. But with the pitcher plant, it is very pitcher shaped, an upright kind of pitcher shaped. Mm -hmm. And whether it's the type that tends to hang and drape that you'll see them in a hanging basket uh, as far as buying them at a nursery or ones that tend to be more ground dwelling that have pitchers that come up from the base of the plant, you essentially have this vessel that the plant creates from a leaf and it's usually partly filled with water just from its natural environment or from you if you have it in your house. And and some of its own digestive fluids too. Right. And then... Again, they have a nectar source at the top as an attractant, and when that insect tries to fly onto that lid or onto the opening of this pitcher that usually has some small lid-looking structure over the top that's open, it's very slippery, and they fall in and are digested. Very slowly. Yeah. 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 And also, some of these varieties don't always solely rely on insects, there are a couple right. fun ones, and there are a couple mentioned in the article. I think the article mentions the bat one a little bit more, if I recall. But there is a variety of pitcher plant that has evolved that sort of lid covering over top of the pitcher. It's extra elongated and tall. And in that particular environment that that variety grows in, it just so happens that they evolved that lid opening to be a perfect perch for a particular type of bat to hang from over the opening of the pitcher. And so the bat has a spot to hang out. It also goes to the bathroom while it's hanging there. That then falls into the pitcher and is digested by the plant. So the plant gets its nutrients there. And the shape of that opening also helps to amplify the echolocation and sounds coming from the surrounding woodlands, which I thought was really interesting. So Mm -hmm. lots of very cool symbiotic relationships there. I know you always like to talk about the, uh, the rodent one. Sure. Because I'm a child, Yeah, but it's, it's pretty fun, I think. So just to kind of, before we go into that, you had talked about two different types, but we didn't go into what they were. So there's the Nepenthes, yep. which is what you described. You described a variety of Nepenthes that has that symbiotic relationship with the bat. So there's the Nepenthes, which are more of the tropical varieties. And those are the hanging ones, mm-hmm. the ones that'll develop this. Sometimes they develop a leaf as well, like what we would traditionally think of as a leaf. And then at the end of that leaf, after that leaf is fully formed, then the pitcher, which is another hybridization of that leaf is then formed. And then there's the Saracenias, which are also native here to North America. And those tend to grow more upright right out of the ground and have more of a, I'd say a champagne glass shape to mm-hmm. it than like the pitcher jug shape of the Nepenthes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there is another Nepenthes that has developed a symbiotic relationship with a particular rodent, which it no longer develops this sort of nectar that's as appealing to insects as other Nepenthes do. It's developed this particular nectar to attract this rodent And it's even evolved its shape, the shape of the pitcher, to be more of like a toilet shape. And so essentially what happens is this rodent is attracted to the nectar and it goes up to it and it squats 
on the pitcher plant, the best way to give you a visual of what's happening between this pitcher plant and the rodent. It's a small rodent, too. It's so very small. That way you're not picturing like a a New York rat, (laughs) New York rat sitting on top of a whole plant or something. It's this little rodent climbs on top of the pitcher. and, And yeah, it's not like overtaking the plant. Right. Yeah. It's this little itty bitty thing. And the best way to describe the way it's sitting on this pitcher plant is you sitting on the toilet backwards. So you're facing the back of the toilet or the wall. And that's how this rodent is sitting on the toilet. I mean, it sounds like a good way to use the toilet. I mean, now you got a flat surface there. You can read a book, check your phone, have breakfast, you know, And there go all the listeners. It's super convenient, but I digress. So this rodent hops up on there and it licks the underside of the pitcher. You know, what we've described before is this little lid that uh, when a pitcher is developing is closed around the pitcher itself. And then as that pitcher matures, that lid opens up to allow for things to go inside of it. So this lid is now open. The rodent sits on this and starts to lick the nectar. And while it's doing that, right, it's now peeing and pooping into the pitcher plant's belly and that's feeding it. And that's nature for you guys. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a symbiotic relationship is literally just having a creature shit in your mouth for you. Perfect. (laughs) So that you may survive. So moving it's on, it's a very to freaky sundew. plant. <laughs> yeah, Switch, switching subjects, but <laughs> staying on pincher plants. <laughs> the article also mentioned this other one. You know, just to take you away from that particular subject, uh, <laughs> there is a critically endangered variety of pitcher plant called. It was a Nepenthes, I think, right? One of the it was a Nepenthes, yep. uh, and that was Attenborough's Nepenthes. And this is the largest pitcher plant in the world. The pitcher structures are one and a half meters tall, and the pitchers can be up to 30 centimeters in diameter. So over a foot wide, these pitchers, and one and a half meters is what, five feet? Just about. Yeah, yeah four roughly. and a half. And this is David Attenborough, like the most probably recognized voice for any sort of nature documentary. Mm hmm. So just a, and again, of course, that one is endangered, but just very cool that there's one that's that large. Hey, Ethan, do you hear that? What? Oh, it's an ad. Real quick. Thanks for listening to our episode today. You can stay in touch with us by supporting us on Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash take it or leave it. And we'll have bonus content on Patreon for all of our subscribers there where you can get extra episodes and snippets from the show that we don't release to all the other platforms. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at take it or leave it pod. And you can also visit our website, takeitorleafitpod.com. If you have any questions or comments or any stories you'd like us to research or talk about, or hell, send us a picture of a plant you want us to identify, you can send that information to show at takeitorleafitpod.com. You can also follow us on our individual Instagrams. I am at hortwise, H-O-R-T-W-I-S-E. And I am at N Farringdon. N-F-A-R-R-I-N-G-D-O-N. Thanks so much. We'll get back to the episode. Oh, uh, you got me. <laughs> sundew? Sundew. Sundew it up. So sundew is a... A failed flavor of Mountain Dew. <laughs> sundew catches their prey by the adhesive method. So these plants have either kind of oblong rounded or long oval narrow leaves and on those Mm -hmm. leaves are these little kind of filament structures and at the tip of each filament hair structure there's a little bead of to insects what seems like a sweet nectary attractant liquid Dun, dun, dun. Uh, but it is actually extremely sticky. And so each of those hairs senses the insects. 
but it also has the sticky substance. So when a... Which is also its digestive fluid. Right. So when an insect, like a fly, for example, flies onto one of these leaves and lands, the leaf starts to slowly curl in on itself and just more and more traps the insect with all these little sticky hairs and this sweet, sticky digestive liquid and curls back in on itself, basically toward the center of the plant. Kind of like a like a sea anemone, you know, like when a sea anemone catches something in its tentacle and then it reels it into the center towards its mouth, only there's no mouth there. Mm-hmm. But just to kind of give people a visual representation of what's happening with the sundew when it catches prey. Right. So just a kind of another method that these types of plants can use And there are a lot of cool photos of that one in the article as well, as well as one of the original illustrations by Charles Darwin, who was the first, I believe, one of the first to confirm the carnivorous nature of these types of plants. Because did we say that there are over 630 species of carnivorous plants? Did we mention that at the top? Something that I think it's pushing 700 yeah. that we are aware of. This article specifically mentions about 630, but back in 1875, it is 1875. So in 1875, Charles Darwin, this is quoted from the article, Charles Darwin published a 400-page monograph on carnivorous plants that shook the scientific establishment. He found round-leaved sundews growing extensively in the heaths of Sussex and studied them closely. And so through his experimentation in 1875, and again, one of these illustrations is in this article, he then confirmed this carnivorous nature in the plant world, which is very cool. Super cool. And that, you know, his experiments there were specifically with the sundew. Well, yeah. So the sundew is a super cool one. It's not as common to find like in a garden center setting as some of the other ones that we described. I feel like you're more likely to find a pitcher plant, whether it's a Saracenia or the Nepenthes mm-hmm. or a Venus flytrap. But some of these vendors that sell little wholesale carnivorous plants to garden centers do sometimes mix in some little baby sundews. Mm-hmm. It's usually one particular species that's a really tiny one that doesn't mm-hmm. usually get a whole lot bigger than three or four inches. But there are some wicked cool ones that can get cantaloupe size as far as their diameter with these really long tendrils it's something that looks like it would belong on another planet right something that super uh, cool if it were human sized we'd be having a tough time i think most things in the small world if they were our size we would not be the number one species that's true if ants were our size we would be struggling It would be a whole nother world trying to get to work at eight o'clock in the morning. If you were a hundred billion ants, (laughs) if you had people size wasps flying around, we'd be living very differently. (laughs) You're like, oh, we're going to travel this nice little pathway here. Damn it. I stepped into an eight foot sundew. Wow. I'm going to be dying over the next eight days. (laughs) Slowly. (laughs) Just leave me here. Right. And just to give you all an idea too, I would say these are usually at a local garden center going to be in like a two to a three inch pot, probably what, five to seven dollars as an average price. Be prepared for like if you find something funkier to to spend double that. Or like I a, had a big pitcher, Nepenthes pitcher plant in a hanging basket. Those are probably what, 30, 30, 40 bucks. Yeah, I remember at that garden center we worked at, we had gotten one year and it was only one year and we weren't able to get them again, which was very frustrating. But it was the super large Nepenthes. It was called Nepenthes X Miranda. Mm -hmm. And they the pitchers came in so big that on some of them, you could damn near fit in a water bottle into them like a standard 16.9 ounce water bottle yeah they were freaking huge (laughs) i know that because at that time that we got them in had a 16.9 ounce bottle of water on her desk Mm -hmm. and i was like look at this and i held it up to her water bottle and i was like holy crap this picture is the size of your water bottle Mm mm-hmm 
and we sold out immediately and we were able to reorder Is them it one you more time two or three of them <laughs> i did buy two of them yeah, yeah. And we ordered them again and they sold out again. And unfortunately, we were just never able to get them again. And I've never seen that pitcher plant available at any garden center again. I know that Mm -hmm. there's like specialty sources online where you can buy really, really funky carnivorous plants. But unfortunately, I haven't seen one that size ever available at a garden center again. I've also seen, if you're looking for some of these in a larger size... I have seen the upright pitcher plant, the Saracenia, sold as a pond plant. Yes. Um, Either individually potted or I've seen them sold in the already kind of floating containers that you can buy and just pop into your water feature in your backyard or whatever. And they just kind of float around. Yeah, Yeah. it's like a like a meshy or very perforated plastic container filled with moss and then has like these foam floaters. Yep around it and it, yeah it just kind of floats around in just your like pond super freaking cool of, yeah good way to trap some mosquitoes yeah exactly Ooh, speaking of mosquitoes should we jump into maybe the water wheel uh yeah. some of the more aquatic carnivorous plants yeah or I, their, ooh, 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 add one last one that i want to talk about before we start talking about some of the more obscure ones that's still found in north america and that's the cobra lily mm, yep I always thought that the cobra plant or the cobra lily was a type of Saracenia because they look very, very similar and or look like they would be closely related. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that it's a totally different genus. And I didn't realize that until I had read this article that you'll be putting in the link that we've referenced a couple of times here that the cobra lily is a very different genus than the Saracenia pitcher plant. And it's native to the Northern California, Oregon state area in their Mm -hmm. boglands. So also another U.S. or North America native. So we have the Venus flytrap. We have Saracenia. We have the cobra lily all as being native uh, houseplants to where we live, which is super cool. Because I think when a lot of people see carnivorous plants, they immediately associate it with at least where we live, immediately associate that with some sort of tropical environment and not a temperate climate zone. And so with the cobra, rather than having the upright open pitcher like you get with the uh, Saracenia pitcher plants, these, the top is kind of twisted over and down a little bit. So the top of it looks sort of like the head of a cobra. And then the, right, the idea of like a kind snake of kind of popping its head up and, and looking out. Yeah. Right. Hence giving it its name. And so then the opening is kind of under where the head of the cobra would be, if you can picture that. And it's usually like the Saracenia has a reddish tone to the top of that specialized leaf that's digestive to encourage curious insects to go and explore because they see that color that they associate to a nectar source. They go in and that's it for them. Yep. Should we get into some of the obscure ones? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of my favorites is the water wheel, which is a really cool one. And it's totally submerged always stays underwater or in the water. There's no root system that binds it anywhere. It is this free floating plant, usually in a swampy area or a pond. It's not in a lot of fresh water sources. I should rephrase that. It's not in like clean water. It's usually in pretty nasty, soupy, swampy areas. Yeah, the article specifically says nutrient-poor freshwater swamps. Right, so where you would find tadpoles and mosquito larvae Mm -hmm. is where you're also going to find this plant. And you can also find this in certain areas across the United States as well, but all over the world. And it's small. If you look at a picture of it, you might get the impression that it's larger than it is, but it is only these little water wheels, which is what traps and snares the food like a Venus flytrap mm-hmm. are only Snap about a centimeter, right? like a, a centimeter wide. So a third of an inch is about the maximum diameter of this. And there's several of them on this kind of stem that's the best way to describe it this long green stem and then wrapped around it several times are these little water wheels and something swims by a mosquito larva or a little itty bitty baby tadpole or some other small creature gets close and it snatches around it 
and then slowly digests it the same way that a Venus flytrap would. Super cool. cool. And it's so fast. I mean, if you think the snapping close of a Venus flytrap is fast, this water wheel is way faster. And it has to be because when uh, an aquatic creature wants to escape from you, it can be very quick. And so it's evolved to even have this more rapid response than, you know, a tadpole. I mean, if anyone's tried to capture a tadpole, it's very hard to do, but this thing would make you look bad. It's so cool. One of the other ones that I hadn't particularly heard of before, and this is kind of, again, in a category as far as like methods of how they're capturing their prey, this is more of a snare type, which I was unfamiliar with one that they mentioned in the article is the corkscrew plant so they have Mm -hmm. an above ground foliage leaf structure but it's actually underground with the roots where they're capturing their prey so rather than capturing something large like an insect or a rodent or a reptile like some of these others we've mentioned they're capturing small soil-borne prey, a lot of times like single-celled bacteria or protozoa, that kind of thing. So their root structures underground are actually the snare traps for these insects. So they have little entrances that these prey items, these organisms can crawl into. But then the snare function essentially is these hairs that line the insides of these kind of tubular root looking structures. And so when the critter crawls in because of the direction of the hairs, they can only keep moving forward towards the stomach, the plant's equivalent of a stomach anyway, to where they're going to be digested. So once they go back in, they can't reverse back out and have to just keep on crawling towards where they're going to be. What a horrible way to die. Right. No way to go by a carnivorous plant is a good way to go. Right. What a horrible death for anything that happens to be trapped by a carnivorous plant. It's like crawling into the tubes at a McDonald's play place and you can only go one way and that tube just leads straight to the griddle. (laughs) Just like that. Yep. Pretty much. You get to the end and you have a hot griddle to land on. Right. And then I, it was interesting, too, to learn there's another. Were you familiar with the parrot pitcher plant? So the parrot pitcher plant is what I thought. I knew that was a Saracenia, but I thought cobra lilies were just that type of Saracenia. I didn't realize that uh, the cobra lily was different than the parrot pitcher plant and a Thanks to this article, I realized that there is a difference between the two because upon quick glance, they do look extremely similar. They do. So they, it is still a Saracenia. It's still a type of pitcher plant, but the top kind of opening looks rather than that cobra shaped, like we mentioned, it almost looks like the shape of a parrot's beak, but these leaves lay almost sort of more parallel with the ground. So it's almost like the shape of if the parrot's beak, but the parrot's laying on its back. And then rather than being an enclosed pitcher, it's a hybrid trap. So it has the sort of pitcher channel shape, but then it has those little hairs like the corkscrew plant we just mentioned. So it's using both methods, the pitcher to kind of lure the prey in, but then also has the snare function with those little hairs to lead them to where they're going to be digested. So interesting kind of combination of the two. Mm -hmm. So to jump back to the aquatic plants, sorry, I got ahead of ourselves a little bit there. And then some care at the end. Yeah. So the bladder wart can also be found in multiple spots around the world. I don't think that there is a native bladderwort to the U.S. I think that they have learned to adapt and survive in areas of the U.S., but I don't think that there is a native one. However, yeah, the, quick... The article doesn't particularly say. It just says grow in fresh water worldwide. Okay, so the common bladderwort, which is the most common one, uh, and I think if people really? look up a picture, it's going to have that... <laughs> It's going to have that yellow flower to it. But so the common bladderwort is native to the northern hemisphere. 
therefore it is abundant across North America as well as Europe. Good to know. So the common bladderwort is a really cool one. And I remember getting introduced to that. I think I'd probably seen it in passing on like nature documentaries or, or whatnot, but where I really became familiar with it was when I was in school and one of my classmates pretty sure it was one of my classmates, someone there had them and they didn't bring them in, but they had a video Mm -hmm. of theirs feeding. They had this specialized water tank Mm -hmm. where they just had bladder warts in there. And And this is a suction type trap. Yes. So it's super cool. So essentially the bladder wart is also a rootless plant, but what looks like may be its roots are actually the digestive chambers for this plant. And so it uses these. And it's all underwater except for when it blooms, right? Right. The flower sticks above the water source. Mm. And so these these little filament-like shoots kind of stay underwater or along, like if it's in like a an area where there's like a little bit of rocks or something along a low shallow area, it'll kind of use these filaments to kind of drape over the rock to kind of give it some sort of support. And like I said, they look like roots, but they're not, they're loaded with all of these little chambers and it attracts small creatures to them because it looks like these little chambers, these small bladders come across to other small creatures as a type of food source, whether it's another small creature or it is um, a portion of the plant that is digestible. So these small creatures go up to these little bladders thinking it's a type of food and triggers this response from the plant to open this chamber, creating a suction that rapidly, like within a fraction of a second, sucks in the creature and then seals off trapping that creature inside. Now this bladder that is now it's home for the next rest of its life. And these bladders are super, super, super tiny. Like what under a quarter of an inch smaller, even. Oh, looks like little tiny. Yeah. Pep, like the the smallest little pebble. And so they're essentially capturing like really, really tiny fish or mosquito larvae or crustaceans, those kind of things, right? Oh, it's so cool. And and like if you go on YouTube and you type in bladderwort eating, I mean, I think you'd be fascinated by any of the carnivorous plants eating, but this one, because it happens so quickly, it's just fascinating to just be like, wow, that creature didn't have a chance. Yeah. <laughs> there there was no way for it to avoid being captured by that just bladder. Just too fast, wart. just too quick. So yeah, just another fascinating one. So yeah, we covered quite a bit. And of course, there's many other types of carnivorous plants, but those are what we discussed are some of the, the main ones. And so to kind of circle back to those three main varieties that we mentioned that tend to be available for purchase, the pitcher plant, the sundew, or the Venus flytrap, as far as care for those, because they are native to those kind of bog, swampy areas, they do all require pretty much constant high humidity. So you'd want to keep those in a terrarium or a humidity dome bright indirect to bright light if you have them in a humidity dome or a terrarium and they get direct sunlight you will cook them well i was saying i've had success too if you don't have like a humidity dome or an enclosed terrarium that you can plant them in to just keep them in a container that has an ample way to they need to have holes and drainage at the bottom of that container and you can keep them in a tray of pebbles that you pour water into that tray. So get a saucer, fill that saucer up with pebbles or marbles, and then pour water into that and then set your pot that has your carnivorous plant in it on top of that tray. And as that water evaporates out of that tray, that'll create a little bit of direct humidity for that plant. And it's not the most ideal condition, but it's something that can get you by for a while. Sure. And then no regular potting mix for those because they're not a no. typical rooted plant like that. I'd say that's the number one reason why I talk to people about their failed carnivorous plants is they put them in standard potting mix. So generally like a sphagnum moss, like a long strand sphagnum moss is going to be best for that because that holds a lot of moisture but also allows for some air circulation. 
and is not, as we discussed in one of our earlier episodes, not nutrient rich. Right. It's just kind of a nice structure to allow for plants to grow in. Right. Because if you are trying to juice these up with fertilizers and they're used to a low nutrient, uh, nutrient deprived environment for their native habitat, you could cook them pretty quick. Very quickly. And then you would either feed them little insects around the house or what, like some little flightless gnats or that kind of thing. Yeah, when I had a terrarium that had some sundews, Venus flytraps, and saracenias in it, I had like a nice mesh lid over that, but I would also put a piece of ceram wrap underneath that. So essentially the, my big acrylic dome or square container, and then I would put ceram wrap over that and just puncture a few holes in it, and then I'd put my mesh lid on top of that to kind of really seal in that humidity. But yeah, I would open that up and I would buy a tube at my local pet store of flightless gnats, super inexpensive, and I would just tap a few in there and then close everything back up and that would be sufficient enough for food. But if I randomly had a fly or something like that, that was a nuisance in my house, if I could get it and get it in a condition that was feedable to the plants, then I would totally put that in there. And they could find their way to that plant on their own too, but wouldn't necessarily plan on having enough bugs in your house to like totally feed your whole collection. Right. And as far as water too, that's a critical item. You have to use either reverse osmosis or distilled water only because of they are sensitive to those metals and salts and things like that that are present in a lot of our water sources. Yeah, using standard tap water over a long, periodically is okay. But over a long period of time, you will start to notice a decline in your carnivorous plants. Yeah. And don't fertilize. Don't fertilize your plant. It truly gets its nutrients from things that it digests. Yeah. So and if so, you put your carnivorous plant in potting soil with miracle Grow, you will not have a plant next week. Right. So to wrap up, I think this is a topic that we've teased in a previous episode. Do you want to... <laughs> Of course I do. <laughs> do you want to? You had me at that look that you were giving me. Yeah. <laughs> do you so, want to describe to our listeners the what we have dubbed the Bramble Conspiracy? I want to first release a disclaimer that nothing that I'm about to say dabbles in anything scientific whatsoever. <laughs> this is... <laughs> This is um, this is a stretch. This is um, anecdotal at best. But go on this ride with me because it's a fun one, and it's we have to have fun a, too. <laughs> it's a fun idea if there really is some level of legitimacy to this. So it's not a new story anymore. I think the the video that I watched years ago at this point on YouTube has like eight and a half million views on it already. So and I'll put a link to I don't know if it's the original video, but I'll put a link to the video uh, okay. in our episode description. So in this video, this English farmer is discussing that they believe and he's being interviewed that, by a news source, right? Uh somebody 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 yeah. came out to write a story specifically about this yes yeah so and it must be real so the premise is what he's believing is that the brambles that he has on his property and brambles being a a berry producing plant so blackberries and raspberries are brambles and now wild brambles can get real crazy looking Sometimes they can have inch diameter vines or bigger. Especially um, out on a farm where he's not going out and like pruning these shrubs back regularly. Right. They can look super aggressive, especially with all the thorns that they have all over them. So essentially what's happening are these sheep that are, you know, haven't been trimmed yet and still have all of their wool on them are going to these brambles and potentially to eat the berries that are producing, uh, that are being produced by this plant. And they're getting tangled up in the thorns of these bramble vines and sometimes extremely tangled up, like 
the more they wiggle and writhe, the more they get wrapped and entangled in these bramble vines to the point where he's found them completely wrapped up. Sometimes they're lying on the ground at this point and they can't move away. They're just totally they're stuck. Totally stuck by these bramble vines. Sometimes it's cutting into them already so they can have a little bit of blood on their fur. And if he doesn't get to them in time, he's stumbled across them already dead. And they just get so trapped and entangled and they can't find a way out and they're in pain and they end up just dying. And that's a hell of a food source for a plant, this decaying animal that is just so happens to be decaying right where its root system is. So the idea and the conspiracy, the bramble conspiracy being that brambles have maybe evolved there's probably way more of an argument against this than there is for this, but go with me. Because they uh, would have had to have, you know, a like long haired mammals around for hundreds, if not thousands of years to adapt to this. Right. Like a bramble in this sort of mentality would have done really well at Woodstock. <laughs> like if there was one of these brambles in the middle of that Woodstock crowd, Man, it would have it would have had a lot of hippies to feed on. <laughs> and who knows, some of them in the state of mind that they were that, that they were in might have been more than happy to do it. <laughs> I give myself to this plan, f the corporations. Anyway, I, I realize that this this is totally going in a very different direction, given that we just referenced the Natural History Museum of Plants in London. And now we're like but there's also this YouTube video of this guy From who says that ago. bramble that says that brambles are eating his sheep. <laughs> but I love the idea of it. And given what we've already kind of discussed and how these carnivorous plants have evolved to do so many things. And just that these plants have, you know, so these plants can evolve to adapt to so many conditions it's kind of a fascinating idea to think that these plants could have adapted in a way to ensnare and trap wildlife for them to slowly over a long period of time break down into the soil and be absorbed by that plant. It's certainly a fun idea. Uh, hopefully this episode doesn't lump us in to cryptozoology and now all of a sudden when people go to search us they're finding us under squatchers united the sasquatchers or whatever they refer to themselves as or the abra cadabra people nope the uh chubacabra there we go the chubacadabras whatever they refer to yeah, themselves as the people. right <laughs> <laughs> the chubacabra cadabras and the ancient astronaut theorists. Oh, can't forget about them. Ancient astronaut theorists say yes to the Bramble conspiracy. <laughs> I think they do. <laughs> if they haven't yet, they will. Probably Brambles were planted from the gray aliens right. 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say 10 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Upwards of at least 10 years ago. <laughs> So, Some might even say that the brambles were present during the creation of the pyramids. Oh, maybe the brambles created the pyramids. Mm hmm. Yeah. It's amazing what you can do when you have a steady diet of sheep. <laughs> but so, so this this has become one of Ethan's favorite ideas, favorite concepts in the plant world. So we definitely are going to have whenever we start doing merch, there will definitely be some bramble conspiracy merch. I've already created a rough draft. <laughs> of course. Um, and it does have, you know, the Bramble conspiracy on there. There is a very aggressive vine that is wrapped around a dead sheep. <laughs> it, it is all the lettering in, in a, like cut out magazine fonts. <laughs> that would look good. I like that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's a, a to me. That would be if we ever get to the point of having merch. I want to submit my uh, my creation for the Bramble Conspiracy for a sweet shirt. I'm sure all of our Patreon listeners are ready. I hope so. That drop. Like, hey, mom, I need you to wear a Bramble Conspiracy <laughs> <Right>. shirt. 
There was there's one thing my mom would look good in. It's a t-shirt with a dead sheep on it. <laughs> well, that's uh that's that. Thanks for going on that little adventure that strays away from the scientific, but I think it's fun. It only strays a little bit away. We still talked about a plant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it for carnivorous plants? Yeah, I think so. I was trying to think of another plant related oh oh water wheel williams ha Mm. one more Mm. okay (laughs) well with that we have wrapped up this week's topic on carnivorous plants this has been the take it or leave it podcast i'm nick farringdon i'm ethan wise don't forget to check our links in the description of this episode you'll find a great source of information for carnivorous plants there and then you will find an entertaining source for the brandable conspiracy yes well i can't wait to convert as many people listening to the bramble conspiracy as i possibly can pretty soon all of our listeners will be wearing tinfoil hats Perfect. It's the best way to reflect the sun's rays while you're out gardening and to get people to not ask you questions about what you're doing in your garden. Right. <laughs> All right. Guys. Have you ever well, been gardening well, and are tired of your neighbors coming up to you to ask you what you're planting? Wear a tinfoil hat. Tin, <laughs> tin hats. That could be our other merch item, but yep. it's for gardening. <laughs> we just send them a roll of foil up charge $10 and a, a template, roll. like a cardboard template. Mush onto your face. (laughs) Uh, Well, before Ethan goes on too much more, I think we're going to cut it off. Okay. Until next week. This has been the Take a Leave It podcast. Goodbye. Bye.